Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 53. I'm Kip Clark, and I have again with me a guest in the studio, Charlotte Graham, who is a Kenyan graduate of 2013 and currently working with AVI at Kenyan, which for those of you who don't know, is our food and dining experience. So she is the local foods person and helps, in my understanding, research food opportunities, go and collect food from neighboring farmers and other work in that area. So Charlotte, where would you like to begin this conversation? I actually would like to start talking about local food in the context of how you interpret it, Kip, because I know from past experiences when I start talking about this stuff with people. I'm so deep in it, partially because I've been thinking about it for a large amount of my life. I first started being really interested in local food when I was in high school. And then also because it's my job now, I think I have a different perspective than a lot of people. So I would love to just hear your thoughts to start and then we can go from there. Absolutely. Well, I have spent a lot of my life in eastern Massachusetts and Wellesley. Just like me. And we have, yeah, we have farmers nearby who frequently bring their produce to farmers markets in the nearby areas, Weston, for instance, but also our Whole Foods in Wellesley has occasionally held local foods events in their parking lot on, let's say, a weekend where everyone can bring what they've been growing. My mother, who loves to cook, has often grown her own basil and, I believe, tomato plants and others in the backyard, and I consider that to be local food in a lot of ways. But larger operations I'm not as much aware of. I do know certain initiatives, I think, in Boston and other places that are not typically farming communities to have small garden plots or planters in apartment communities or other areas that are typically residential. But other than that, I don't know a ton about it. I do reflect, though, one of my favorite things about living at home and living near Whole Foods is all the food that they bring in. And of course, other grocery stores that bring in foods from a variety of areas, regardless of season or other limiting factors, because obviously way back when you ate what was in season, nearby your house because that's how communities worked. And I love being able to eat blueberries, for example, almost year-round because they're one of my favorite foods and other things like that. I don't need to get into details, but I'm aware that if the blueberries are not in season, potentially they're coming from across the world where the other hemisphere is in summer while we are in winter and vice versa. So I know that it's tricky that sometimes we love foods, but as a result of acquiring them, there's a lot of fuel cost that goes into it. There's a lot of travel means of preserving the food during that travel, which could include certain chemicals, I'm sure. Obviously, there's pesticides in the beginning process to keep the food safe from insects and other things. I'm no expert, but I definitely know vaguely about some of those details. Has anything that I've said sparked anything in you that you want to then tackle further or get into? Totally. Yeah. I like that you started off with a little background on your experience with food, so Mm -hmm. I can do that too. Maybe that's helpful. So I grew up also in a suburb of Boston. My town's called Belmont. We don't have our own Whole Foods, but there's one just down the road in Cambridge. And I also grew up with a garden in our backyard. My dad is an avid gardener, and he has turned most of our yard into vegetable gardens. So we have fresh lettuce out of the garden all year round. He grows carrots and beets and kale and Swiss chard and all kinds of other vegetables. Is there ever the threat of animals, let's say rabbits or other rodents, eating that food? Has that ever happened to your father? We had two cats my whole childhood, so they kept the rabbits at bay. 
okay for the most part, and it wasn't really an issue, Mm -hmm. surprisingly. Slugs were a bigger problem for us than rabbits. That makes sense. (laughs) And then when I was 10, my best friend and I started going to this camp in Central Mass called the Farm School that runs week-long summer camp programs for middle school-age kids, and it's on a working farm, and you basically just get like a farm living experience for a week. And that was so fun. We had a great time, and I really enjoyed being on a farm around livestock and seeing the larger scale of like if you make your garden 10 times bigger how much food can you grow compared to what my dad grows it didn't occur to me that that lifestyle was such a departure from the typical way of how people get their food in our society today and it wasn't until the summer after my freshman year of college I worked for this organization in the Boston area called the Food Project which brings high school age kids from the suburbs and from inner city Boston to this 40-acre farm in Lincoln, Mass., which is about half an hour outside the city, to learn how to farm, work in the fields, and then also do a lot of really awesome workshops on the food system, food justice, inequality, poverty issues, hunger, all kinds of really important things that had never really been a part of my experience growing up because I come from a pretty privileged background. And that really changed how I look at food. That was my first real watershed moment, I guess I would say, in how I think about where our food comes from and what we have the opportunity to eat. You and I grew up in families that can afford to shop at Whole Foods. Absolutely. And obviously, a lot of other people don't have that privilege. And that's something that's always in the back of my mind, thinking about food. So that's a little background about me. I worked on a couple more farms through my high school and college time. And now I'm back here at Kenyon sourcing local food. I got to do this job for a summer when I was still a student. And that was an awesome experience for me to sort of see the infrastructure side of the issue. So not just like pulling the vegetable out of the ground and bringing it to a farmer's market the way I did back home, but now actually seeing the process of getting it from the farm that might be 30, 40, 50 miles away, 100 miles away from the place where it's actually going to be eaten and transporting it from that location to a processing facility where if you're talking about meat, for example, you can't just bring the whole live cow into Pierce Dining Hall. You have to bring it to the butcher first and they have to slaughter it and cut it up and freeze it. And then you can bring it into the dining hall and have it be prepared to be eaten. So I think a lot now about the infrastructure piece because that's something that is very different now than it was 50, 60 years ago in this country. We've really shifted the way that we bring food from the place where it's grown to the place where the consumer can access it. And I know at some point, I'm forgetting the name of the book, there was some revelation about the Chicago meat industry that came out about how the they jungle. were right, how they were processing the meat. Mm-hmm. And I think to me what stands out is how they were storing the meat, which I think is interesting because to my knowledge you're working with a lot of foods that are harvested and pretty quickly brought to piers or maybe mm-hmm. to other locations nearby. Not a lot of storage goes on. How do you think storage complicates some of this process of keeping food local and also keeping it safe as was not shown to be the case in the jungle? Yeah. Storage is a huge issue because if you don't have a place to keep your food fresh then it's not going to make it from the farm to the table. And that's something that in the industrial food system when you get your apples from Washington State, they are picked way before they're ripe so that they will stay fresh. I'm doing air quotes. Stay fresh long enough to get to you in Ohio or Massachusetts or wherever. Same thing with peppers or lettuce, all kinds of things. They need to 
be shipment ready and they are stored in tractor trailer trucks and in airplanes, cargo planes on ships if they're coming from another continent. And that's a piece of infrastructure that is in place because it's what our industrial food system demands. But the infrastructure for a local food system, storage-wise and processing-wise, all kinds of things has sort of collapsed in the last 60 years because our industrial food system has grown into this massive thing that sources the majority of our food products. So there aren't a lot of big coolers where you can put all your food. That's an issue that we run into in Pierce where my boss and I could buy so much more local produce in the fall than we do, but we don't physically have a place to put it in Pierce before it goes bad, which is a bummer. Okay. Another question I have, and again, I'm no food expert. I know that bananas, I believe, ripen more quickly than many other fruits and Mm -hmm. they actually release or secrete certain hormones that can ripen things around them. Yeah. Ethylene gas. With that knowledge, are there foods that are more resistant to ripening or spoiling? over time that can maybe be stored for longer periods in whatever space because of that trait they happen to have and maybe are more appealing to people like yourself for acquiring larger quantities and not worrying about whether or not they're going to spoil? Sure. So root vegetables are a really good example of this. If they're stored in the right conditions, like in a root cellar is the ideal, which is about 40 degrees and dark. And so often people will have a little section, like a a lot of the Amish farmers that we work with have a little section of their basement that is unfinished and just cold and dark. And that's where they store all their food. So potatoes, sweet potatoes, carrots, parsnips, butternut squash keeps really well, or acorn squash keeps really well. So up until the beginning of April, we were actually purchasing sweet potatoes locally. And now we've stopped buying them locally, not because they have gone bad, but because we are just out. There are no more sweet potatoes in the area. But those are really great products. All of our potatoes are local. And then apples keep really well, too, if you keep them at low temperatures and if you alter the chemistry of the air that they're kept in. Interesting. They spoil more quickly if they're exposed to too much oxygen. So our local orchard, which is only four miles away from campus, has a big storage facility where they can actually bump up the amount of nitrogen in in the atmosphere in there and it keeps the apples fresh longer. So the apples that we're eating in Pierce up until the end of April are local, which is very cool. But then also talking about ethylene gas specifically, I don't know if you've ever seen these little bags that you can get in the grocery store or like in Sky Mall catalogs that are like, keep your vegetables fresh for longer. And they have some kind of compound in them that actually absorbs ethylene. So it is possible to just sort of eliminate that from the environment in which a fruit or vegetable is being stored until you're ready for it to be ripened and then you can just spray it with a bunch of ethylene. That's how tomatoes are dealt with oftentimes. Okay. They're picked when they're green and then they're sprayed with ethylene right before they're going to be delivered, which is why in the winter and spring you might notice that your tomatoes are kind of mealy and gross because they didn't get to ripen all the way. While we're on the topic of seasons, I think that a good place to talk about our industrial food system is, and this is something that you touched on, Kip, is to talk about seasonal eating. And I mean, I think I'm a more radical foodie than a lot of other people, but I think that if the food movement demands that people stop eating bananas and only eat their oranges for a three-week period in February, which you might have noticed is when oranges are the most delicious because that's when they're actually in season. Mm If the food movement were to demand that of people, it wouldn't get very far. So I don't think that the right answer is to say you should only eat things that you can buy locally, although there are people who do that. My best friend worked on a farm for two years that runs a whole diet 
CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And the idea is that you pay an upfront price at the beginning of the season. And that's really cool because you're supporting the farmer upfront and giving them the capital to make improvements on their farm or buy their seed or whatever. And they have a guaranteed market for their product. So this whole diet CSA farm provides all the food that you need, both quantity wise and nutritionally from this one farm, which I think is a really cool program. They grow grain and they have cows that they milk and they grow produce and they are working on building up their orchard so that they can have fruit and they have honey and maple syrup and all kinds of other delicious things. And they are going with this program is to enable people to eat all of their food from this farm, which I think is really awesome. But it's also very extreme because it means that you can't have bananas and you can't have coffee and you can't have oranges and you can't have all kinds of other things that are delicious. And I don't want to keep people from eating them. So I think the best approach for people who want to be more aware of where their food is coming from, the first step is to just think about what can I eat that's in season and do so in moderation. So a really good example for Kenyan students is that here in Pierce, we've gotten complaints about this. Chef Megan and I have to deal with complaints about this because people want their zucchini all year round but zucchini is only in season up until mid-October, and then we have to buy it in from California and other places across the country and across the Western Hemisphere. So that really doesn't make sense nutritionally because the zucchini is getting picked when it's not ripe. It doesn't make sense in terms of fossil fuels and carbon footprint because it has to get shipped from thousands of miles away, whereas in season, I go to the produce auction that's 20 miles from here, and I pick it up and it was picked that morning and we bring it back into Pierce and it gets cooked the next day, which is awesome. And it's also not great economically because you are buying it out of season, which means that it's more expensive than if you bought it from a local farmer. And then also because you're not supporting a small local farmer who's an actual person or a family, you're supporting this big corporate operation that is very large scale and not in your local community. That makes sense. What is the next thing that we should discuss? I think I'm touching on it. I touch on it a lot when I talk about food is just what does our industrial food system look like? What does that mean when I say industrial food system? Basically, you might have realized this. Our food system, as it stands, entails growing a ton of produce all year round out in California and in other parts of the country where it's warm all year round, and then shipping that produce to other parts of the country where it's cold, like New England. And that's great because it means that you can get your bananas and you can get your oranges and you can get your zucchini. But it's a problem for a bunch of different reasons that I touched on when I was talking about zucchini, but then also on a larger scale, it really separates you from the way that your food is grown. If you think about how many steps it takes to get from a potato that's grown in Idaho to the McDonald's french fries that you might eat on a road trip or just on a Friday because you want french fries. That's a lot of steps. It has to get grown on the farm in Idaho. Then it gets shipped to probably a facility where it's washed, cleaned, where the ones that are too small or too big are sorted out. And then it gets shipped to another facility where it's cut up into french fries and fried part way. And then it gets shipped to probably McDonald's warehouse somewhere in the country. Or maybe there's a bunch of them regionally. I don't know a lot about McDonald's business. (laughs) Who does, honestly? (laughs) It's a grand mystery. And then it gets shipped from the warehouse to the McDonald's location. And then it gets fried there. And then you go through the drive-thru and pick it up and you eat it. And there's just so many steps separate separating us from the food that we eat so often. It's kind of scary. You have no idea what that potato looked like. 
I agree. I think it is very scary. And two things that you said that really resonated with me, mm -hmm. the idea of simplicity and how complex the system has gotten. I think with foods in general, you think about all the crazy ingredients that are added into some candies or sodas. That complexity for the human body is very difficult to process. And that's why you see increases in certain diseases or susceptibility to disease, because these are ingredients that are chemically very, very complex. And, and our bodies... Our bodies are not designed to break those things down. Mm -hmm. And I think that's problematic. And we should at some point, perhaps in another episode, discuss all of the crazy ingredients that are added into food, but also the idea of separation that you're talking about. And I think we've skirted around the entire episode. To me, health is intrinsically linked with obviously the food that we eat. And I know people often say you are what you eat. I think that's not only the food that you eat, but where it comes from and the idea that you're eating something that supports, let's say, a lot of fuel emissions or whatever, and don't get me wrong, I've been doing that and eating blueberries that are not necessarily in season, but I think we need to consider not only where the food comes from, but how we prepare it. I think we would see a healthier nation and a healthier world if more people were in charge of their own food preparation or at least harvesting their own food. One of the reasons that documentaries like Super Size Me are so horrifying is because we really see what's going on with the food. No one's going to be horrified to see how spaghetti with tomato sauce is made because it's a pretty innocent process, at least ideally. That's part of what makes food great is that it can be this really innocent and hearty thing that brings people together. And so I would personally advocate for simplicity and a connection with food. And that's what I love about the Food Project, which I will link to in the episode. It's founded in Eastern Massachusetts, I believe, in 1991. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that it connects people to the food and also the idea that it brings diverse groups of youth and I believe other volunteers together. Food is one of those things that we all have in common. I don't think people recognize that enough and we can talk about race and gender and other things that do legitimately differentiate us in some ways. And those are obviously complex ideas. But food, ideally, can be very simple and we all need it. Regardless of who you are and where you live, we need food. So thank you for indulging me in that diatribe. I think those are two of my favorite ideas, the simplicity and connection to food. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think there are so many problems in our country and in this world that seem to be so disparate from each other and so hard to solve altogether. But I really, really deeply believe that if we can figure out how to give people access to quality, healthy, nutritious food that's grown in a way that is responsible towards the earth and in a way that enables people to know how their food is grown and where it's coming from. If we can crack that nut, I think that so many other pieces of inequality in this country and world can really fall into place and be a lot easier to solve. One other question I have for you related to the idea of industrial harvest of faraway places leading to the local markets where we buy food. I'm wondering how problematic overharvesting can be because I imagine that plenty of farmers to please the corporations or whomever they're working for or selling to harvest as much as they can from their fields to sell all of that. And I suspect that overharvesting leads to price decline and other very problematic things, maybe even rotting food when customers aren't buying the thousands of potatoes you harvested when they needed hundreds instead. And I'd be curious to know about the environmental and other effects because I suspect you're better off not harvesting everything and letting the soil retain some of its nutrients instead of forcing it all out the door when half of that isn't going to reach the mouths and stomachs of the people that you're intending to feed. So kind of a convoluted question, but over-harvesting, to your knowledge. How bad is it? How frequently does it happen? The problem with industrial agriculture doesn't come so much from 
the harvesting process. Okay. I have never heard of over-harvesting as an issue. I think the real problem is wearing out the soil, basically. Mm-hmm. So if you decide to plant potatoes on a certain chunk of your property in a given year, that's great. Hopefully they'll do really well. And you should pull them all out of the ground and try to sell as many as you can. And the ones that you can't sell, you should compost. But you should not grow potatoes on that same piece of ground the following year. Right, you should rotate your crops. Yeah, crop rotation is a much more important thing that isn't happening a lot of the time in industrial agriculture. And here in Knox County is a great example. You see so many of the fields in our area that are either growing corn or soy. And I can talk about the problems with that for so long because, first of all, most of that corn and soy is not actually going to be human food, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. But Just in general, if you are alternating your fields between just corn and soy, corn and soy, corn and soy, year after year, you're going to be depleting a lot of really important nutrients from the soil. And the industrial agriculture complex has figured out that you can get along okay if you alternate between corn and soy and you put tons of fertilizer and herbicides on the soil. But it's actually much healthier for the earth and for the food that you're going to be eating if you have a more complex rotation cycle and plant more than just two things. That's like monocropping and die cropping are very common in industrial agriculture where you only grow one or two crops on your land because it's more economically beneficial to you because you can build this giant economy of scale. But you're not looking ahead 5, 10, 50 years into the future Mm -hmm. when you've completely drained the soil of whatever nutrient that particular crop is very greedy for. You're not putting it back in by growing cover crop that you just turn back into the soil and it adds tons of nitrogen. So I think the issue is not about harvesting too much of the food that you've grown. It's about being responsible with the plan that you have for your farm and growing a wide variety of crops that do different things for the soil. They take some stuff out and they give other stuff back. Okay. While we're on the topic of treating the earth right, because we're a bunch of hippies, I think a really important thing to talk about right now in our country as it relates to food is that California has been experiencing a terrible drought. Mm Mm-hmm this past year and for the last couple years, really. And we're just continuing to deplete the natural resource that is water in California. And that's where a vast majority of our produce is grown. And so that's one really good argument, in my opinion, for building local food systems back up where we are now. Because if we can't have some level of resilience in our food system, then we are going to be so screwed when California runs out of water or when the grid shuts down and there's not enough electricity to keep the coolers running in the big warehouses where our tomatoes are stored or when we hit peak oil and there's not enough gas to get the trucks from the west coast to the east coast. The only way that we can protect ourselves from what I envision to be a widespread famine all across the United States is to rebuild the regional and local food systems that can provide the necessities of life for people in that area all year round. It might not be as fun. You might not get your blueberries in February, Mm -hmm. but you will be able to survive and you will have food to eat. That's a huge thing that I think is maybe one of my more radical ideas that people think I'm a crazy prepper. (laughs) But I think that 
it is a big threat to the way that we live now. Well, in your defense, people, in my experience, aren't always great with foresight. And so a problem doesn't exist until it's right in front of them. And things like California's drought that perhaps could have been predicted are not urgent because people don't see the problem as being urgent. So they don't act with any urgency. And while I think that's understandable human behavior, we are unfortunately a part of a larger system and a part of a larger planet that works in ways which we are beginning to understand and should act upon. So I would then ask you, radical as it may be, what would be some of the first definitive steps or pieces of action that people could take to begin rebuilding local communities around agriculture? The first important thing would be for people to start growing their own gardens. I think if you can see how easy it is to grow food for yourself and then also how challenging it can be and what farmers are up against, that's a huge step for a lot of people that you wouldn't normally take. I think that everybody should rip up a little part of their lawn and turn it into a vegetable garden, which is something that the government really promoted during the World Wars, the victory garden concept, Mm -hmm. because we had food shortages and were rationing as a part of the war effort. And so the U.S. government really encouraged people to grow their own produce. You can grow a shocking amount of food on a very small plot of land. And I think it says something about our country or perhaps people as a whole that people were compelled to do so because of a crisis. And presumably it sounds like they put their heads down and did the work Mm -hmm. because they felt it was a national or even a larger issue and they were willing to participate. I think if more people felt as you do, radical again as it may be, (laughs) that it were a crisis and I personally don't think it's a radical belief. I think there are clear signs that we've done some problematic things regarding agriculture and food handling, I can totally understand. And I think it's interesting that it worked, at least in the past, maybe on a smaller scale and maybe not with every American. But I also really like what you said about seeing how easy it is, but also how challenging it would give people an appreciation for farmers, which is great. I'm all for gratitude and understanding of others through seeing how they live, but also the ease of it. I think the American way has very quickly become the way of ease and things that we can do conveniently. And I truly believe Americans or others who were reluctant to try farming or gardening would be more encouraged to do so if they saw, like you said, how well you can grow healthy and sustainable food just by tearing up some land or even getting pots, I imagine, and growing fewer quantities of food. So, Charlotte, before we close out the episode, and of course, you know, I'd love to have you back. And I think there's a lot to talk about related to food because it's a big subject. But before we close out this particular episode, do you have any last comments or last things you'd like to say to the audience? Yeah. So I really liked what you said about convenience and America having a culture of convenience. Something that we need to shift in our minds as a culture is that our food shouldn't always be convenient. It takes a lot of work to feed ourselves. And the way that we're currently living in our industrial food system is pushing all of that work back and back and back and externalizing the costs of the labor that goes into creating our food. We're externalizing those costs by underpaying the laborers who work on the farms where food is grown. We're externalizing those costs by using a ton of fossil fuels and not worrying about the carbon emissions that result from that. We are using lots of pesticides and herbicides that have undetermined consequences. We are using GMOs in a lot of cases and who knows what's going on with them. It's a hot button issue. And that is really preventing people from understanding the amount of work that goes into the food that they eat. And I think that a really important shift that we need to make both personally and socially as a culture is to start investigating the amount of labor that goes into food. So my great grandparents 
owned a farm in western Massachusetts. That's where my grandmother grew up. And that was their work. They worked all the time on producing food primarily for their family. And then in addition to sell to market. But that is a huge commitment of time that you're making as a farmer to producing the food that you are going to use to feed yourself. And if people, average people who are not farmers can take a little bit more of that work onto themselves by buying fresh ingredients instead of TV dinners or by preserving their own food, like buying a ton of apples and making applesauce and putting it up in jars or buying a ton of cabbage and making sauerkraut, any kind of thing that puts you more in touch with the labor that it takes to make your food, I think is a really important shift that we need to make to step away from the convenience and maybe the slight premium that you pay for the convenience of buying a bag of frozen french fries and instead buying a whole potato and cutting it up and baking it into french fries yourself. Right. I completely agree. And I would also urge the audience to consider some of the options that Charlotte has mentioned, smaller gardens or doing whatever you can to engage more with the food that you are not only cultivating but eating, have those discussions with family members or friends. I think it is definitely valuable. And I also think, if nothing else, to the extent of human health, something we could all get behind but I agree there are larger issues at stake often that should be considered. So Charlotte, before we conclude, thank you very much for coming on. We would love to have you back. Thanks for having me, Kip. And of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between, and we would love to hear your comments, criticisms, or opinions on the topics and ideas that we've discussed here. So if you would like to reach out, you can contact us via Twitter at Stride N Saunter. Our Facebook is Stride and Saunter. You can email us, strideandsaunter at gmail.com, and we encourage you to check out our website, strideandsaunter.com. And as always, we thank all of you for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.